Oh, well, half measures ought to value half of something, right? They should, right? Well, I think. Never did. I'll raise my hand on yeah. that one. I never did, though. It's only problem. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. I'm an alcoholic. And, and I'm truly, truly honored to be up here speaking and sharing my story. Uh, uh, I'd love to be able to sit here and tell you that I, uh, you know, came from an alcoholic home. You know, my dad was an alcoholic, my mom was an alcoholic, and that made me an alcoholic. That would make it easy. Well, none of that's true. But what I can say is I grew up in a psychiatric home. My father was a psychiatrist, my mother was a psychiatric nurse. I was in a treatment center my whole life, from the time I was knee-high to a grasshopper to the time I am now. You know, uh, uh, I don't know when, I, when my alcoholism started, but I know that I was a little bit different than most people, even at an early age. Um, going back to my story, uh, uh, because my dad was a doctor, and they kind of they said something's not right with Bobby. You know, so he used to give me these things, and I call them smart pills. And what smart pills do is you take smart pills. I was about six years old going to first grade. I'm taking smart pills. These smart pills make you smart. And every time I take these little pills, I go to school, I was doing better. And what it turned out was, it was Ritalin. I was on Ritalin at an early age because I was restless and irritable and discontent from, from the word go. You know, uh, my parents, I grew up in Houston where I, where I got uh, sober actually. And I lived in Houston in the NASA area. I went to high school with a lot of astronaut sons back in the NASA area, you know. Famous astronaut John she Alan Shepard's son was a was my high school teammate in football, so that's where I grew up. And uh, so as it turned out, you know, I was working my way here to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know it then, but I know it now. Everything happens for a reason in life. And if you're sitting in this room today, welcome home. There are friends that you have that they'll be with you every step of the way and everywhere you go. And you're going to hear some things about my story that's going to convince you of that. That the fellowship and the unity of the people in this room is incredible. I never felt it anywhere. I'm a believer. So as I go on about my story, you know, you know, I was a kind of a rebel in high school. I started out pretty decent. I was an athlete, you know, and then uh, in my high school, there were three groups you could join. They called them the jocks the freaks and the kickers. And the kickers were the country boys, okay? And I started out as a jock in football and I became a freak. And I used to smoke weed every day, every single day of school. My mom used to get high, I'd take some, I'd go into her bedroom and sneak some weed from her and make sure she didn't know I took some out of her dresser. And it was like, it was just, it was just on. You know, uh, I'm a living miracle I'm actually a high school dropout that became a high school teacher. Now, if you don't think there's miracles, come see me, okay? Because I am one, believe me, you know? And it's because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the, God, the power I found in this room. You know, uh, as I became older and older and older in high school, they were trying to control me and they couldn't figure out how to control Bobby. We gotta figure him out, he's got something. He's off kilter. So they put me in a psychiatric hospital and they're trying to do all this stuff. They're trying to figure me out. And I remember it like it was yesterday. They said, we're going to have a family intervention. My therapist came to me and said, we're going to have a family intervention on you. I said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go because I know what they're going to say. I'm going to be in this room and all my family members, they're going to point the finger. There's your problem. This is the problem with this family, Bobby. He's got something wrong with him. And I heard this phrase for the very first time. It was probably, I was probably 16 then, that I was the black sheep of the family. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and what did I find? The rest of the flock. You see? There's a classic characteristic that I hear a lot in the rooms of alcoholics and addicts too, by the way. They say, well, we didn't fit in anywhere. No matter where we went, we never fit in. But when we got into the disease, got into the drugs and the alcohol and the drinking and all that, 
we knew how to fit in wherever we went. And I did, you know, you know, part of my upbringing was my parents got divorced when I was a teenager. My dad's a doctor. He went off and married somebody, da da da. I was a latchkey kid. My mom was a psychiatric nurse in Houston for 20 something plus years. And she used to come home every day. Well, I'd come home from school. She used to work three to 11. And I would come home from school, guess who was there? My dog, nobody else was there. So I kind of got maladjusted, you know? I dropped out of high school and joined the military. I was 17 years old when I joined Air Force, 1978. I'm the only alcoholic you're probably ever gonna meet that can tell you verbatim the sentence that started their drinking career and the sentence that ended it. And I'm one. So I get in the military and I'm 17, I'm thinking, oh, well, that's, we're living high on the hog. Okay, we're making money, we're eating good, we're having a place to go, you know, home life wasn't good. And I remember going, to this, uh, going through some training and stuff and I went to this one base and some of the older guys were saying, hey, we're gonna go clubbing off base, you wanna go with us? And they were probably maybe 19, 20, maybe 21 at that point. Back then, the drinking age was 18. And I said, you know what, yeah, I'll go. I didn't have a car, I didn't have much. I loaded up in the car with them, we go to this club. You walk through the front door of the club, they check everybody's ID. And they saw that I was 17 and I was underage for drinking, so they stamped my wrist, no alcohol. Can you imagine that? You know, I really wanted to drink, trust me. So I didn't drink the first night we went. A week goes by, we're going again. There it is, bam, stamp, no alcohol, no alcohol for you. And a guy looked at me, he was across the way, one of the guys I went out there with, says, why aren't you drinking? Now this is a sentence that started my alcohol career, not my first drink, when I got, my, my drinking took off. He says, if you're old enough to fight and die for your country, you're old enough to have a drink. And the only thing I could say to him is, say that one more time. <laughs> and he said that one more time and it was off and running. My, my sobriety date, I started drinking in 78, and I ended in 88. My sobriety date is December 17th, 1988, at 2.20 a.m. That's the moment in time when it ended for me. Now, you know, when I was in the military before I quit drinking in 79, you know, and I, back then I was like 18. Now I could drink. I'm legal. You see, I don't know how long ago it's been, but drinking age eight, that's a while back. But I got in this uh, motorcycle accident and I was nearly killed. And a friend of mine's girlfriend came to the hospital, her boyfriend, a friend of mine, and they came and said, we heard the doctors talking about you out in the hallway. This was in like July of 79. I said, they didn't think you were gonna make it. And I said, damn. It opened up my eyes. Now, at that point in time in my life, I was doing, I was uh, one of the called garbage can addicts that takes everything. You know, if there was pot, let's do it. If you're gonna drink some stuff, go ahead. You got some Coke, okay, bring it on. Whatever was there, I did everything. And I decided, you know what? I don't wanna do that anymore. And I tried to quit. I did quit. I said, but I tried to quit everything all at once. Next thing you know, I'm in a psych hospital. They're doping me up with stuff because I was, I'd lost it. I'd lost it. And I was in an Air Force psychiatric facility for four months. Doped up on everything they could give you. And if you ever saw that movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I've lived it. And I don't want to go back. So I got out of the military for a while and then I got cleared to go back in. Uh, went to this one base. Uh, September 1982, DWI number one. And I was on active duty and I had gotten arrested for D Illinois back then. Got arrested for DWI. My first sergeant, my lieutenant, had to come bail me out of jail. Now that ain't good. And they got bars on their shoulders. They, they don't take care kindly to that. Say so in the military what happens is if you get, if you mess up on drugs or alcohol, they put you in a 90-day 
outpatient therapy group. It wasn't AA, they called it social actions. So all the people would come to this room that all screwed up on stuff, and I was one of them. So I'm thinking, okay, well, it's, uh, my thought was, maybe it was the wrong place at the wrong time. You know how we are, kind of rationalize it. So let's just tone it down, is what I'm thinking, next time. Well, there was a next time, and that was the last time for me. But anyway, I uh, had to go to this little group, and because I had psychiatric parents, I knew how to play the little lingo stuff in the groups. How you maneuver that kind of stuff. I, I was good at it. All my parents, they always talked that stuff to me. And I learned, I heard it in my household, my home. You know, so I went on about my way. Now, every time you got put in this thing, you got to go see the commander. And he's asking you if you think you got a problem with alcohol. I said, well, I didn't think so. I'm well, going about my world, going about my life. And I decided uh, I was taking a class in college algebra in Illinois back then. It was 84. I looking up there, I said, man, I like what this guy's doing. Because I didn't know if I was staying in the military or getting out, okay? Because I, I was starting to screw up, you know, and I was, you know. So I decided, watching this guy teach, I said, that's what I want to do. I want to teach high school algebra and coach high school football. And that's what I am today. I didn't get to coach this year, but I'm, I'm a teacher by trade. You know, so decided I was living off base and I said, okay, I'll move back on base, uh, save some money, put some money away for school, pay my car off. What happened? You know, so the first Friday that I got back on base, first Friday night, I hit the club. Friday night. Next day, Saturday, I'm supposed to be in, I'm a sergeant now in the military. I gained a little rank. I'm running the shop where I work. I work in refueling. Anything to do with planes flying, we had to put fuel in and they got. So I was in charge of this little shop. But my head was just killing me. I had one of the worst hangovers that I could ever have thought of having. You know, it's not the worst pain, physical pain I've had, but that was pretty bad. And we had sofas in, the, in our shop. So after I relieved the, the midnight shift, I thought, let me get the other guys working. Let me just lay down on the sofa just for a minute just to calm my head. Well, God has a sense of humor. Guess what happened? My, I fell asleep, and my supervisor, one of my supervisors, his son, come up there on Saturday, and they were in their civvies, saw me on this, on this couch. Next thing you know, I'm in his car. We're on our way to the hospital. And they're going to take blood off of me and say, are you drunk on the job? It wasn't a if, then, or what. They were doing it. So I had a little bit left over from the night before. Now I got put in this 90-day rehab again. Strike two. And the people I worked for, they didn't like it. Because when I would go and drive across the base to go to these meetings, they had to double up their work. You know, and made their job hard. So I decided, you know what? If I'm going to get out of the military, I got a year and a half to go. I am not going to drink a drop of alcohol between now and the time I get out of the military. And I was on the driest drunk you ever would have seen. You probably would not have wanted to come up to me and say much because I was kind of, I was on edge. Let's just say, I was counting down days. Guys at my job, they'd say, how many more days you got? 152, next day, 151. Next day, 150. And then, lo and behold, Got out of the military. Went to school in the University of Houston and then uh, got a DWI in 1988. My last DWI was in December. And uh, I have a printout from the arrest. And I'll never forget that night. No. I heard a voice in the back of my ear. And it wasn't my, my mom was, uh, see, when I was going to college, my mom was in Al Anon because of me. That's how bad it got. She had started going to Al-Anon. And I used to say, she used to give me the finger. And the finger was this. It wasn't flipping me off, although she probably did it a few times. But she'd point at me and she'd say, Bobby, you're an alcoholic. You need to go to AA. You need to work the 12 steps. And I said, what do you mean, 12 steps? I know nothing about that. But God had a plan. He got me here. So when I got arrested for DWI that last night, 
I heard Don Meredith sing, turn out the lights, the party's over. <laughs> I'm a football fan and I remember that. Turn out the lights, the party's over. And I haven't had a drink since. The last night I drank, I spent $79.47 to the penny. Because I, I went out that night with 80 bucks. When I got out of jail, I had 53 cents. So I'm a math teacher, I can figure it out, you know? My breathalyzer count was 0.18. Arresting officer was, was A.E. Bellamy. And uh, went on and thanked him later on in my career in AA. So I got through college and I started working to be a teacher, started working as a substitute, you know? And then uh, did that for a little while. And then uh, I had about two and a half years, it was May of 91. My mom says to me, says, Bobby, what are you going to do for work once school gets out? And I said, hell, I don't know. And she said, why don't you go apply for a job as a psychiatric technician at Baywood Hospital, which is right down the road from where I live. And I said, no, I don't want to work in a hospital. Nothing good happens there. There's a lot of people that got pain, they're suffering. And then she kept kind of <coughs> nagging me. She says, I know the lady doing the hiring. We worked together in Houston for 20 plus years. And I said, all right, I'll go over there. So sure enough, I went over there and applied. Next thing you know, I'm working in a psychiatric facility. And I've been in enough to write a book. Okay, now I got keys. So I can get in and out. And so that was, that was a strange deal. So this hospital had all the different units. They had a men's unit, a women's unit, a children's unit, an adolescent unit, the acute care, which was a locked facility, and they had the drug addiction alcohol recovery unit. So I took the job and started going, working as I would teach during the day and go to the psych hospital at night. So that was kind of unique. And then after I'd been there for about two weeks, one of the nurses says, Bobby, we need to have you take some of the people to the meeting in the white van they had, like the one out here. And I said, okay, where do I go? They said, here's the meeting, this is the address, starts at eight. Had a list of people, rounded them all up, we loaded up in the van, we went off to the AA group. And I remember after I did that a few times, I started thinking, you know what? Some of the people that were gone may not really want recovery, but for them, it's, it's a field trip. Let's get out of the facility for a while. So I, you know, and, and I don't judge or anything, but I just what I saw, you know, so some of them wanted it and some of them didn't. That's okay. So after I'd been there a little while longer, I feel, started getting some pull with these nurses. I said, uh, do you mind if I go to a different group? And they, I said, they asked me, is it AA? I said, yes, ma'am, it's AA. Uh, what time does it start? I said, 8 o'clock. It's close to here. I said, yeah, you can go to that. So I started driving in my home group when they would take, up, take the addicts, alcoholics to the group. And I thought, and that was kind of like my first God moment. The seed had been planted in Alcoholics Anonymous for me that I wanted to be here, you know? And uh, so if you're new, and I don't know what brought you here, somebody might have convinced you, maybe the higher power, whatever, but there's something, I, I call it the magic riddle of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's in how it works. It says, if you have decided you want what we have and you're willing to go to anything to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. You know, and that was intriguing to me. And I started, I would go to meetings and I would hear how it works and I'd hear that line and then I'd start looking around. Do I want what y'all have? And I could see in the eyes of some of the folks that had a little gleam. And the people have been around a while, they know what I'm talking about. There's that sparkle in them, they've got, they got God in them, let's just call it what it is, you know. But, uh, so I got sentenced to three meetings a week by the probation department in Houston. I had to get them a sheet signed, had to go every time, you know. And then uh, pretty soon it's like, I wanted what y'all had. And I kept coming, I started, I didn't care about the sheet after a while. I carried it because I was on probation and they would sign it and I kept filling up names and once I'm going to the probation department and they would say, you're going to a lot of AA meetings. And I'd say, and I'd show them, here's a 30 day. And I go another month, you're going to a lot more AA meetings. I show them a 60 day. 
you know, and I kept showing up with these chips. So what they did was they actually, I was on probation for two years and they took me off probation after one year. So they cut me loose or whatever, dismissed it or whatever. You know, so, you know, started out, like I say, I was going to the meetings and driving the little van and, you know, then I, um, there's a part in the book, it talks about, we had to fully concede our innermost self that we were alcoholic. And that's the first step in recovery. And I know it vividly for me what happened there and how I know. The club that I started going to in Houston, they had pay coffee machines. And this is called the coffee incident. See, I, was, I, I didn't want to pay for coffee. And I, but I had to pay for coffee. And I was cheap back then. I didn't have much work and stuff. So I said, well, you put the quarter in the machine. And if you put the cup under, put the quarter in, hold the button, and it gives you coffee in the cup. The longer you hold it, the more coffee you get. Well, I was a cheap bastard. So I said, okay, I'm going to hold this button down and see how much coffee I can squeeze out of this quarter. Right? And this cup was one of the little ones. And then I reached over and picked it up. And I was walking away. Because it was so full, it burned my hand. And I set it down real quick. And I realized, damn, I'm an alcoholic. Because now I knew that alcohol is just a symbol of what we do. My definition of alcoholic is only, now, today, is only two words. Now and more. And that's it. Whatever I want, I have to have it now. And when I get it, I want more of it. You know, and I don't live that way anymore. I don't live that way anymore. You know, so, you know, went through some... Uh, ups and downs and um, I'll share this little story. Uh, I started out teaching in 92 and and I was at the junior high and I wanted to uh, I wanted to upgrade my teaching license so I could teach at high school level and I took some tests and did some stuff and passed this whatever sent some money in and the state of Texas sent me a letter saying we're not going to upgrade your license. And here I was, I wanted to be a high school math teacher and coach football at the high school level. And that was shot down in flames. So in the letter, there were three things. There was an ABC choice. A, concur with the board's findings. B, write a written rebuttal. Or C, go to a formal hearing in front of the commissioner of education in Texas. I said, you know what, let's do a hearing. Because I'm going to stand up for my beliefs. So all the people, and I was probably about six years sobriety then. I was talking to the people that I knew at the club, kind of like Cosmo, except there was a lot more folks. And I said, I'm going to this appeal hearing in Austin for my teaching license. Would you sign this little letter saying you know me in AA? And all the people in AA, this is where the fellowship took hold for me. I said, yeah, we'll do that, no problem. So I went around, people that knew me, they signed their name and blah, it up. I got my letter and went off to Austin. And I'm on the stand, they're talking about my credibility, which is not fun to hear. I know we're not saints, as the book says. We have some flaws, but I do. I'm alcoholic, okay? So I, 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 I'm one of y'all, okay? So uh, I'm on the stand, and the judge pulls out this letter, and they say, what's significant about that letter? And I looked over at it, studied a little bit, and I started breaking down. The guy says, the judge says, if you want to relieve yourself, go to the restroom, come back, whatever. I went over to the restroom, put some water on me, cleaned up, come back, sat down in the chair. He says to me, we want to remind you, you're still under oath. And I said, yes, sir, your honor, I understand that. He asked me, he says, what made you break down? I said, well, to be honest, sir, I didn't notice it at first, but when you asked me to look at that letter, what I saw was there were 15 names on that page. 13 people had signed their name, their first and their last name, as well as their sobriety date and their phone number. And what that meant to me was these people were willing to give up their anonymity to help me. And it, w it was because of that letter that I'm standing in front of you today. Because, and I, it breaks my heart when I talk about it, but you know, it's like, uh, then I knew that the people here had my back. And if you're new, we got your back, trust us. Trust the people here, trust the fellowship, trust the process. There's a lot of love in this room, you know? So 
they'd excused me for a while and they did a little committee meeting and they came back and said, we're going to grant you the license. And then I ended up getting the upgrade on the thing, you know, and moved on. But, uh, you know, that happened in, uh, you know, 94 when that happened. And then I met one of the, uh, what they call it, the boy meets girl on AA campus type of deals. Okay, I was talking to this girl, she was really pretty. Oh, she's one of the most beautiful women I've ever met in AA. She was asking me one day, she said, what are you doing today? It was Sunday. I said, well, I want to watch football today, but my mom's got the one TV and I live with her, I'm in college. And she said, well, you can come over to my house. She was renting a room from somebody. I said, okay. I went over there and uh, we're sitting there on the couch watching her favorite football team. She was a Dolphin fan and uh, the Dolphins were playing the Raiders. And uh, I was watching it, and I'm sitting on the couch next to her. And I have a football mind, okay, so I know a lot of football stuff, terms and whatever. And she says, watching the game, all of a sudden she says, wow, awesome. I look at her, I said, what? I say, the Dolphins just ran a heck of a draw play. I said, what did you say? <laughs> the Dolphins just ran an outstanding draw play. I said, you know football? Wow. It was love at first sight then. It was like, it's game on. You know, so our romance kind of took off a little bit. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, I asked her, I said, her name was Cheryl. I said, Cheryl, what kind of work you used to do before you got an AA? She was a porn model. Oh. Two months later, we're living together. Okay. <laughs> I, I am who I am. I am who I am. You know, but I tell you what. It was fun for a while, you know, I'll tell you, it was fun for a while. I'm not going to lie, you know, but uh, I dated a girl previous to that. She was a member of Mensa. Now, Mensa, you have to be to have the IQ of a genius. I met her like a year before that. So that was strange, you know, you know, but this thing uh, with me and Cheryl kind of, you know, it ended eventually, but uh, it got me going to Al-Anon, see, uh, because, see, I was in pain over that separation. But I was looking for, I was looking for the answer. What could help us out? What, where is the solution to this deal? You know, so, and I'm a stu student of the game. I'm, I'm, I'm looking. Now, I'll tell you what. If you're ever going to get involved with someone in AA, I encourage you to read page 119 of the 12 and 12. And I'm going to read part of it here. It says here, AA has many single alcoholics who wish to marry and are in a position to do so. Some marry fellow AAs. How do they come out? On the whole, these marriages are very good ones. Their common suffering as drinkers, their common interest in AA and spiritual things often enhance such unions. It is only when boy meets girl on AA campus and love follows at first sight that difficulties may develop. I qualify, okay? <laughs> The prospective partners need to be solid AAs and long enough acquainted to know that their compatibility at the spiritual, mental, and emotional levels is a fact and not wishful thinking. So there was three parameters I had to look at. The spiritual, the mental, and the emotional. And I thought, well, if I could hit two out of three, we got a shot. So I look at me and her, spiritual level, nope, we weren't compatible. I wish it would have been. She was actually a month older than me, but didn't work out. Strike one. Mental area. I'm a high school teacher at that time. She dropped out in the eighth grade. Strike two. Okay. And then it says uh, the emotional levels. She was a little childlike. I was probably the more mature emotionally kind of guy. So I knew it was done. And I had to accept reality. You know, so I tell you what, and that's just part of my story, you know, and it's like, um, you know, things just happen because of just the miracles of AA, you know. My first sponsor that I had was 30, had 32 years. I was looking for somebody that had what I wanted. And this one guy had 32 years and just was in sync with life. And I've, I've lived in eight states in recovery, by the way, so I'm kind of a, I kind of go around a little bit, but uh, I'm hoping to be here. But, you know, one time I was in, in Houston, and this is when I had about, I was coming up on a birthday in, in 19, 
it was 1996 I was gonna have eight years and I went to this meeting the meeting was at 630 and I was there about between 6 and 630 the coffee the meeting before the meeting we used to have a dry erase board they'll have the little dates and the people's names on it you've seen it at some of the clubs and I was talking to this buddy his name was Steve I said he was asking me how I was doing one day we were waiting for the meeting I said oh I'm doing pretty good I said I'm coming up on a birthday he says uh, what's your day I said December 17th and Steve said to me that's his day December 17th I said what year did you get sober he said 94 I said oh I got sober in 88 and I looked at the board and there was his name my name was there with some other folks different dates in December so that was kind of cool and uh, the club that I used to go to is called the Bay Area Club in League City, Texas, my original home group. When they were getting this club going, they used to have every other Friday, Saturday night, they'd have a dance. they raise all kinds of money. And I bonded with, this was, this was about, this was like a few months later, this was in April. You know, they was off and on, and I bonded with this girl. And we decided we were going to go out on a date one night. It was going to be, I saw her one Saturday, and I'd seen her a few times, so I knew her. We were going to go out. The following Friday night was April 11th. I hooked it up with her. We got it all set up, whatever. Go back to the meeting on Monday. There's my buddy Steve, who I've known now four or five months. We got the same sobriety day. And I said, Steve, guess what? I've got this. He was asking me about the job and all that, but I want to say, hey, look, got a date with a girl. Better to dance. We're going out this coming Friday night, April 11th. That happens to be my regular birthday. Steve looked at me and said, that's his regular birthday too. <laughs> I said, are you shitting me? I said, let me see your driver's license, son. He, <laughs> and I pulled out my license. I'm freaking out now. I look at my license and his right on the table. He was born April 11th, 1951. And I was born... April 11, 1961. I got sober December 17, 1988. He got sober December 17th of 94. Wow. I said, what do you do for a living? I asked him. He said, I'm an engineer. I said, wow. I'm in a math-related field. I teach high school math. That's weird. I said, where were you born? I asked him. He says, he says Steve says, I was born in Ohio. Oh, wow, I was born one state over Pennsylvania, right next to Ohio and Pennsylvania. If you look at the map, they're right next to each other. In fact, the town I was born in was Warren, Pennsylvania. Now, I don't know if he was born in Warren, Ohio. That would have been over the top. I would have probably had to check into rehab, <laughs> you know. But I said, man, that is a trip, you know, and it talks about it in the book. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens by mistake in God's world. And I didn't quite believe it up until that point. But after that all went down, I'm a believer. I'm a for sure believer. You know, and then, uh, you know, my life continued to grow and get better. I did a lot of service work and coffee making and working the steps and helping people and running. I was one of those, see on that traditional, whatever, let's see, what is it? I think it's, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, let me see, it's number eight. Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. I actually got paid to work in one of the clubs that was so big. They had meetings every day, 6 a.m., 7.30 a.m., 10 a.m., 11.30 a.m., Al-Anon, 3 p.m., you know, 5 p.m., 5.30, 6.30, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock candlelight on the weekends, all kinds of meetings. So, and I worked it for a little while. That was kind of cool. But, uh, you know, eventually my time in Houston wore out, wore out. You know, and, uh, and I decided to go to, I was going to go to California because there was a high school out there that ran the old Chicago Bear 46 defense that I wanted to learn. And I headed out that way, and I talked to them about it. I wound up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, from Houston. And I'm sitting in the room at a meeting. There was probably as many people in this room as there are now. And I saw this one guy. I looked across. I said, that guy looks familiar, real familiar. I went over to him after the meeting. It turns out we were both in the same high school in Houston. We went to high school together, and I recognized him from being in high school in Houston. That was, was, was kind of weird. 
But uh, I don't doubt what happens here anymore. And also, I lived in Albuquerque, and I was trying to get in one of the districts up there. And then there was another girl that came along. Now, now, me and her, we weren't connected. She wanted to go from Albuquerque. This was in a couple of months after I'd been there. She wanted to go from Albuquerque to Colorado to get a two-year trip at a group she used to go to. And she wanted somebody to drive her up there. I said, well, I want to go to Colorado. I've never been up there. Uh, she actually wanted this other guy to go. She had something for him, but he couldn't make it. So I was a fill-in. So I said, I just want to go check it out. And we went up there and we stayed at her sponsor house and went up to Colorado Springs. And man, if you ever been up in Colorado or up in that area, it's just really, really beautiful. You know, so I come back after that and then I said, I'll go up here. It looks good up here. So in January, I'm living in Denver. And I said, okay, I'll go up here. I'll move to Denver. Now, you know, I've been at a high school in Denver where a kid was stabbed and killed at lunch, you know. I once interviewed at Columbine High in 02 when I was up there. I bought a house in 05, lost it, but I had a house. It's the only house I ever bought. Probably the only house I ever buy. But, you know, you know things just got really good for me. Um, then I was, uh, you know, I, I made friends with this guy in Boulder, Colorado, the AA group. And his name was Steve, another Steve by chance. And uh, he says to me, I'm leaving the country for a couple months. Will you stay here in my condo and watch my animals? And I said, sure, I'll watch your animals. Go off and do that kind of thing. And I'm going to talk about, the, this is a story called, it's about the Wright brothers. Okay. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull this out of the book real quick. And it says, this is on, I'm reading out of the third edition, by the way. It says here, um, we, asked our, we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. This is in We Agnostics. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be real help to other people and uh, was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we saw newsreels of lunar flight of course it was and then it says here it says when we saw others solve their problem by a simple reliance on the spirit of, upon the spirit of the universe we had to stop doubting the power of god our ideas uh did not work but god idea did and then the paragraph i was going to read it says that we the wright brothers almost childish face faith that they could build a, fly, a machine which could fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Without that, nothing could have happened. We agnostics and atheists were sticking to the idea that self-sufficiency would solve our problems when others showed us that God's sufficiency uh, worked for them. We began to feel like those who insisted the rights could never fly. Now, back in the day, as far as I know, there were a lot of folks that doubted the Wright brothers. And they said, this is not going to happen. And they figured out, they saw all, everybody tried it, and everybody failed. It never happened. I would have loved to have been there when I saw all the looks of the faces when all the, oh, shit, there he goes. You know, seeing is believing. You know, and, and the, thing, the reason I read that is because when I was sit, house-sitting for this guy, I was on my little laptop, and I was... There was a TV show going on in the corner, and I was kind of halfway. I was multitasking, and it was the, the Cosby show. And the, the two young teenage boys, they were having to do a report for school. So Cosby asked him, he says, how's your report coming for school? And they said, oh, we got the introduction so far. So he asked him, he says, what's it on? It's on the right, brothers. I don't know. And you just got the introduction. Said, yeah, let me hear it. Pulls out a sheet, starts reading. The first flight by Wilbur and Orville Wright at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, occurred on December 17th, 1903. I heard that date just vaguely. I went on the computer, looked it up. Sure enough, December 17th, 1988, the first flight. And I got sober 85 years to the day. You know, it's, it's, it's funny that it's in the book, you know. And in my life, like I say, it's, it's, I've had some ups, I've had some downs, but I've never had to say, you know, is this worth giving up sobriety for? 
Hadn't found it yet. No job, no place, no her, none of that. I'm here for the long haul. I'm still waiting for them to get these other boards up here, surrender to win. I'd like to see that, but that's me. I mean, I see that in my mind. You don't see it. I see surrender to win. You just see surrender. I'm, I'm kind of, I got the power. You see, I can see that. But, uh, you know, uh, ultimately, as my life got better, I said, ah. one time I was in Houston. This was, uh, this was, back, this was in 98, actually. Uh, I went to get this printout from the police department about my arrest. I was trying to clear up something with the school district. And I had this printout and had the name, date, and all. That's how I got the 2.20 a.m. It's on a little sheet. And there was an arresting officer's name was there. And I was talking to the police, the people, the people in the police department. I said, is this officer still working with the force? This was in Houston. I said, oh, yeah, he works at this one substation. I said, Here's the phone number. They gave me the phone number. His name is A.E. Bellamy. I called over there. I wanted to thank him. So I called over there and I said, is Officer Bellamy working tonight? I said, no, he's not working tonight. He'll be here in a couple of days. I said, okay, thanks. Let me know. Click. So, you know, I decided I wanted to go see this man. And I just picked up my 10 years of sobriety. And then uh, it was right before Christmas, and I said, I'm going to get him a Christmas card. And if you're like me, bring me something to eat. Okay. So I was trying to find something to get him to eat. I couldn't find what I wanted. I couldn't. I got him a box of peanut brittle. And I had a peanut brittle and a card. And I wanted to go thank him for arresting me for DWI. I drove down to the police station. I walked in. Two women in their blues sitting there. First thing he said to me, can we help you when I walked in? I said, yes, ma'am, I'm here to see Officer Bellamy. They said, uh, where does he know you from? I said, he arrested me. They said, how long ago? I said, been 10 years. So they called him on the phone, he come down. You know, big guy, walks over. I said, Officer Bellamy, I know you don't remember me, but you arrested me for DWI. And I want to thank you for doing that because it saved my life. You got me in Alcoholics Anonymous, my life has never been the same. Never been the same, you know, and uh, to this day, you know, I'm deeply indebted to that man for getting me here. And I'm deeply indebted to the people that have walked the path before me. You know, they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, when you come in, the path is real wide. Okay, it's everybody, bring everybody. The longer you stay here now, the narrower that path gets the narrow that path gets. Stuff I used to do won't cut it today. You know, you know, I still would not drink and I'd start running game. You know how we do it? No, those days are over, okay? I had a sponsor once in Denver up there and he used to say, when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you're ready for AA. And when you're sick and tired of being sick and sober, you're at step six. You're ready to make a change. You know, in the 12 and 12, well, step six, it says, this is the step that separates the men from the boys. And that offended me when I was new. I said, you're challenging my manhood in recovery. But today, I kind of understand what the philosophy was. This is how I interpret it. You know, I believe this phenomenon happens. It did for me. It may happen to you. When I started drinking alcoholically, I stopped growing up emotionally. And when I stopped drinking alcoholically, I started to grow up through the pains of doing some stuff you may want, not want to do, okay? I made mistakes, sure, but I never drank over them. I made amends for stuff, apologize, you know, try to grow up, try to get better one day at a time, you know, one day at a time, you know. So, you know, I ended up moving to Minnesota for a year or two. In fact, that was kind of an awkward deal because I applied for a license online and then uh, a couple of months after I applied, they sent me a letter, got a letter from the Minnesota Ethics Board. And they said, and the letter says, when you signed up for your license online, you checked you had no convictions. When we did your background check, we found that you had a DWI in 1988. And I said, okay. I, looked into it because I remember I had a letter that said dismissed signed off by the judge and most of the school districts I've gone to to get on and they do background checks nothing's ever come back 
So I thought, well, I'm good. So I called down to Houston and gave them my information. They said, uh, I'm just checking my background, seeing if I have any convictions. He said, you have a DWI in 1988. And I said, okay, I'm good with that. You know, click. I was guilty of sin. I'm definitely guilty. So I got all my paperwork sent to me. I had got rid of all of that stuff. They sent all that. Then I got this letter. I was looking for this one where it said dismissed on it. And what it was was they had dismissed me off probation, not that the conviction was overturned. They just, you're off probation, you know. The seed had got planted. I kept showing up to AA, you know. So I decided to put all my paperwork, and I got a letter. I typed it up to this lady, and I said, I was not trying to deceive the state of Minnesota. I was, in fact, arrested for DWI in 1988. And I had a letter that said, that I thought was a dismissal, but it was being dismissed off probation. And I sent, at that time, I had 27 years of recovery. I put a, in a little thing, a chip, my 27-year chip, and I sent it to her. You know, about a month later, she emailed me and said, we decided to offer you the license. And we're going to send you a letter in about a week, and you'll get your sobriety chip back. And then uh, another, the next day, a guy says on email, your teaching license in the state of Minnesota will be available in 48 hours online. I didn't wait 48. The next day, I'm looking for it. There it is. And I'm living in sunny California, <laughs> which has the most beautiful weather anywhere in this country. And I've lived in a lot of places. And uh, so I went up there. And... Uh, Went up there for a while. I couldn't get, couldn't get in the school district up there. It was so hard to get in. I had a license, so I subbed for a while. You know, and I'm about ready to wrap it up. I'm going to talk about how I got here. When I knew things weren't going to work out there, and I was subbing, and I was, I'm kind of like a nomad. When the school season's over with, I can run. And I do run. I may end up leaving Arkansas. I don't know. Um, but anyway, I looked up Arkansas online. I said, hey, it's kind of scenic out there. There's some good stuff out there, some lakes and whatever. Let me see what it's about. So the school year ended, I come down here in June. And I saw enough of Arkansas to think, you know what, I could live here. It's got kind of a Minnesota feel to it, but it doesn't have the cold like you guys. I mean, you guys think it's cold now, but <laughs> there's nothing. I mean, it's fine here for me. Um, so anyway, I went over and uh, filed for a teaching license in, uh, in Arkansas. And I went over to school that had a vacancy, and I went over and introduced myself, and I'm so-and-so, I'm thinking about moving here. And they asked me, well, how's your license here in the state coming? I said, well, I just filed today, but I have two other licenses. And it was just a kind of a cordial visit. And I started coming to Cosmo. And I thought, man, there's some pretty good recovery here. Because I've been in a lot of different places, so I can compare recovery from other folks in other places. I was in California, Houston, I was in Denver, and I, was in, I spent some time in Arizona. You know, and you know, Oklahoma even. You know, and I went over there over Thanksgiving break for a couple of days to see some old friends. And I know the difference between the people in Oklahoma City and the people in Little Rock. You don't know the difference is? The people in Oklahoma City are hard. The people out here in Little Rock are cuddly. <laughs> Y'all are cuddly. That's all I can say. Y'all got stuff cuddly with you. You're fluffy. You're fluffy. You know, so I came out and visited. And one guy gave me his phone number and says, here's my phone number. If you need anything, call me. He didn't come tonight, but I was, I was asking him for He gave me his phone number. All right, so I started coming to the group, and I started checking out different places, went out to Bass Pro Shops, talked to people about the fishing, you know, and then I left. And I went to go spend time with my stepmom, and she lives in a little town called Laredo. And that's always south, way down south. So I got this call a few days later that they wanted to interview me back up here in Arkansas. And I was oh, 700, 800 miles away. I said, I called my buddy up here. I said, they want to interview me in Arkansas, but I'm in Laredo. And I'm thinking about flying up. And his name is Steve. And uh, he says to me, well, let me know when you're coming. I'll pick you up at the airport. I'll take you to the interview, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I sent him a text message. I said, can I stay with you one night? He said, absolutely. I said, let me work out the flight details. So I got the flight all hooked up. I flew out on a Sunday. I stayed at his house, West Little Rock. His wife's in AA. They have a couple of dogs. It was kind of cool. I stayed there one night. He took me to the interview. And then after the interview came here, 
So in noon meeting, and he had some things he had to do with work. And I said, well, I'm good. You can just drop me off if you got things to do. He took me to the airport. I'm going to fly back to Texas. Within three hours, I get a call. They want to offer me the position. So I took it. The only problem is the position I interviewed for was not the position they gave me. Okay. The only difference is I just want to teach higher level math. That's all. So I'm trying to, I interviewed at Bryant. I'm, I'm trying to go over there. You know, and I told one of the ladies outside one day, I said, uh, they were asking about the job thing. And I said, well, I interviewed at Bryant. And I said to her, I said, if I get the job at Bryant, I'll probably put in for a girlfriend because I'll stay. But I don't know if that's going to happen. We'll see. So uh, I'm going to close. If I got a little time, I want to just read a couple things out of the book. This is by, uh, let me read this one. I heard this before, and I'll close it after this reading. Uh, I like to be on time, and I'm a little bit over, over time. But this is something. You're not going to find this reading in the fourth edition. Okay, it's not in the fourth edition. It's in the third edition. And it says here, and I want to thank you all for being here, by the way. God loves you because he loved me, you know, and I got here. It says, I wish I could tell you all that AA has done for me and all that I feel, think and feel about AA. But it's something that I've experienced and have never been able to put it into words. I know that I must work at it as long as I live. I know that it is only by working at it that I can stay sober and have a happy life. It is an endless career. It has changed not simply one department of my life, it has changed my whole life. It has been a fellowship with God and man that has held good wherever I've turned or whatever I've done. It is a way of life that pays as it goes every step of the way in compensations that have been wonderfully rich and rewarding. It has made life a thousand times easier and simpler than did the endless compromises and conflicts by which I lived before. It pays daily in more harmonious relationships with my fellow men and an ever clearer insight into the true meaning of life. And in, an answering love, and in the answering love and gratitude wherever and whenever I have been the instrument of God's will in the lives of others. In all these ways I've experienced in ever-growing measure and beyond all expectations and rewards, a joy which, has been, which I had never before imagined. The words of Dr. Bob and Bill are with me all the time. Dr. Bob said, love and service keep us dry. And Bill said, always we must remember that our first duty is face-to-face -face help for the alcoholic who still suffers. Dr. Bob tells about keeping it simple and not to louse it up. It is the last thing I ever heard him say, and I think there are some of us who at times tried to read extra messages and complexities into the steps. To me, AA is within the reach of every alcoholic because it can be achieved in any walk of life and because the achievement is not ours but God's. I feel that there is no situation too difficult and none too desperate, no unhappiness too great to be overcome in the great fellowship Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you ever read Keys of the Kingdom, there's a line in there that says, as arrested alcoholics, we need a program for living that allows for limitless expansion. And limitless expansion is code word for all things are possible. And I'm living testament. So that's my story. Thank you very much for being here. Good job.